0: Hi, my name is Isla Watson and I am your True Crime Consultant, ready to talk to you about true crime. Hello, hello, hello everyone. Welcome and thank you for joining me for a new episode of True Crime Consultant. My name is Isla, and I am your True Crime Consultant, ready to discuss a very interesting case this week. I hope you enjoyed last week's History Sunday episode, or actually it was two weeks ago, but I know I definitely enjoyed researching it. I just love the historical angle of it and the fact that it happened so long ago and being able to compare it to how investigations happen in this day and age. If you have not yet listened, I highly recommend you go check it out and share your thoughts with me on Instagram at True Crime Consultant. Also, please share my podcast with your friends and family, I would really appreciate it. And of course, if you have any feedback or thoughts, please do not hesitate to share them with me. I am always looking to improve and become better, and getting feedback is a part of that. But please be gentle. Now, why don't we dive into today's case? Today's case is completely different, not just from last week's case, but from every case discussed so far. Today, we are diving into the case of Jennifer Pan. You might have already heard about this case, and I know it is quite well known, but I find this case so extremely interesting, I just had to talk about it on my podcast. There is more about this case than just a child murdering her parents, spoiler alert, as if that's not insane enough on his own. It's about years of lies and deception from Jennifer Pan and how she quite literally lived a double life, with one being completely made up. Instead of facing the truth, a troubled Jennifer dug herself deeper into her own web of lies until it all unraveled with a deadly end. On November 8th, 2010, Hui Han Pan was in bed, and his wife, Big Ha Pan, was downstairs reading a book and soaking her feet. Their daughter, 24-year-old Jennifer, said goodnight to her mother, but before going upstairs, she unlocked the front door. At 10.02 p.m., she turned on the lights in the upstairs study. Some minutes later, three men entered the home through the unlocked front door. What happened next was a horrifying ordeal for both Han and Bik. Sadly, Bik did not survive this horrifying ordeal, and Han barely survived. But what happened? What led to this moment, and could it have been prevented? This is an episode on Kids Who Kill Their Parents. Jennifer Pan Jennifer Pan was born in Canada to her Vietnamese immigrant parents, mother Bic Ha Pan and father Huy Han Pan. Han was born and educated in Vietnam and he moved to Canada in 1979 as a political refugee. Bic also immigrated to Canada as a refugee. They married in Toronto and settled down in Scarborough. They had two children, a daughter, Jennifer, who was born on June 17th, 1986, and a son, Felix, who was born three years later in 1989. The Pans found work at Magna International, an auto parts manufacturer in Aurora, Ontario. Han worked as a tool and dye maker, while Bick made car parts. The couple worked hard for their money to ensure that their children had the upbringing and opportunities they themselves had missed out on. Han and Bick were very careful with their money and what they spent it on and saved most of it. By 2004, they were financially stable enough to purchase a large house with a two-car garage on a residential street in Markham, a town with a large Asian population. The couple was also able to afford nice cars as Bick drove a Lexus and Han drove a Mercedes-Benz. Being careful with their money and saving a lot had further paid off as they had accumulated roughly 200,000 Canadian dollars in savings, which is honestly extremely impressive. As Han and Bick were very disciplined and worked hard for their money and success, they had the same expectations of their children. Jennifer's parents set many goals for their children and had extremely high expectations of them. They expected their children to work hard and achieve good grades, be the best in class, excel in school, and eventually get good jobs so they could achieve what their parents did and more. According to a high school acquaintance of Jennifer, Karen Ho, Han was seen as the classic tiger dad and Bic was his reluctant accomplice. I looked up the definition of a tiger dad, as I was not yet familiar with this term. Tiger parenting is a form of strict parenting, whereby parents are highly invested in ensuring their children's success. Specifically, tiger parents push their children to attain high levels of academic achievement or success in high-status extracurricular activities such as music or sports. Jennifer was made to take piano lessons starting the age of four as well as figure skating classes for which she trained most days of the week. Jennifer was a very talented pianist and had a trophy case full of awards by the time she started elementary school. Jennifer was also a strong figure skater and she even had hopes of becoming an Olympic figure skating champion until she unfortunately tore a ligament in her knee. She had her eyes set on the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver and the pressure was enormous. Some nights during elementary school, Jennifer would come home from her ice skating practice at 10pm, after which she would have to do her homework until midnight before she could finally go to sleep. The pants picked Jennifer up when classes ended each day and monitored her extracurricular activities very closely. During high school, Jennifer's parents never allowed her to date boys or attend high school dances or proms out of fear that these activities would distract her from her academic commitments. So early on and throughout most of her younger and teenage years, Jennifer's parents were quite controlling and had a tight grip on their daughter. Even during university, or at least when her parents believed she was at university, Jennifer was not allowed to attend any parties. At the age of 22 she had never gone to a club or been drunk or gone on vacation without her family when her parents allowed jennifer to join a sleepover at a friend's house bacon hand dropped her off late at night and picked her up early the next morning throughout the years jennifer had complained to her friends at school that she was not happy with how strict and controlling her parents were now of course All teenagers complain about their parents but Jennifer's case was exceptional and she was also able to compare how her parents raised her to how her friends were being raised. She saw how much more freedom they got and how she was missing out on all the birthday parties and social events and had to hear her friends talk about what she had missed out on. Of course Jennifer's friends agreed with her and regarded this upbringing as restricting and very oppressive. Now, I don't know if this is related to her strict upbringing, but it is reported that Jennifer started self-harming when she was in 8th grade as a result of the pressure put on her from her parents. I believe she would have been around 13. As graduation from grade 8 got closer, Jennifer expected to be named valedictorian and to collect a handful of medals for her academic achievements, but she received none and she was also not even named valedictorian. She was shocked because what was the point in trying if no one was going to acknowledge her efforts? But instead of expressing her devastation and her unhappiness with the situation, she told anyone who asked that she was perfectly fine. Something that she would later call her happy mask. Despite her parents' high expectations and that Jennifer had received good grades in lower school, during high school her grades were somewhat average except for music. Now, in order to keep up with her parents' expectations, Jennifer started forging report cards on multiple occasions using false templates to show her parents that she had received straight A's when in reality she had not. Her grades began to slip from A's to B's and lower. And this is where her web of lies actually started, with her forging report cards in high school. And moving on, you will see that her lies continue and she will have to make up new lies to cover for previous lies until all her lies unravel. She literally started living a double life and her lies started becoming bigger and bigger. In her senior year of high school, Jennifer failed calculus class and in response to this, Ryerson University withdrew her early admissions offer. This news was devastating, and she could not possibly tell this to her parents for two reasons. One, of course, is her parents would be so disappointed because of the high expectations they had of her. And two, she had been forging her report cards. So if she told them that she had filled calculus class, it would expose all of her other lies and her forged report cards, and the whole fallout could be much worse. So since she could not bear to be perceived as a failure, she decided to do the only thing that she knew which was lie she began to lie to those she knew including her parents and pretended she was attending university now jennifer was not allowed to move out of her family home during university so she remained living at home with her parents which made lying about going to university much more complicated now to keep up appearances, of course, Jennifer would say that she had class and she would leave the house, but instead of actually attending classes, she would sit in cafes or go to the public library. She also taught piano lessons and worked in a pizza restaurant to earn money and to keep busy. To further maintain this charade, Jennifer told her parents that she had won scholarships worth $3,000 and forged papers to show that she had received a loan and that that is what was paying for her studies. After a while, two years into her lie about attending university, she told her parents that she had accepted an offer into the pharmacology program at the University of Toronto and was transferring. This was another lie, but it was also her father's dream. She forged an acceptance letter and went to the extent of purchasing second-hand textbooks, notebooks and highlighters, and watched videos relating to pharmacology in order to create notebooks full of class notes that she could show her parents. She would even tell her parents about professors and exams and people in her class. Essentially, her entire family knew a completely fabricated history about Jennifer's academic career. At home, her father Han often asked Jennifer about her studies, but her mother Bic would tell him not to interfere, let her be herself, she would say. When it came time to graduate from the University of Toronto, Jennifer bought a fake Bachelor of Science diploma to show her parents. Naturally, her parents were thrilled. They were proud that their daughter had been successful in following the path that they had forged for her. And when her 2008 graduation ceremony came closer and her parents asked when it was, Jennifer told her parents that the university only gave out one ticket per student and that she had given hers to a friend as to not exclude one of her friend's parents. And Jennifer, of course, was kind enough to give her ticket away to help a friend in need and she insisted that her parents did not make a big deal out of it. As I mentioned before, Jennifer's parents were extremely strict and Jennifer was limited in the things she was allowed to do. Another thing that Jennifer was not allowed to do was date. And while she was fake studying, Jennifer requested permission from her parents to stay near the campus several days a week with a friend called Topaz. But in fact, she was staying with her boyfriend Daniel Wong, a high school sweetheart whom her parents knew nothing about. They met when they were in the school band. Jennifer played the flute and Daniel played the trumpet. Jennifer began dating Daniel in 11th grade when she was about 16 or 17, and Daniel was a senior. He was a year older than her. At some point, Daniel was forced to transfer to a new school after his grades started slipping and after police found marijuana in his car and he was charged with trafficking. So she fell in love with a real bad boy. It is easy to imagine that her parents would not want Jennifer dating at all, let alone a low-end marijuana dealer. So at this point, Jennifer has created an entire web of lies, starting from when she forged her report cards, to when she pretended to graduate high school, to pretending to go to university and then transferring to another university. A lot of lies. Oh, and also, of course, she was lying about not having a boyfriend. There was a lot going on. Now to me, it seems that keeping up with all of these lies is an extremely difficult task. I would easily forget a lie that I had told and I would probably just wake up one morning at 10am, my mom would ask me, shouldn't you be in school or shouldn't you be at university and that would just be the end of it, you know. But Jennifer was smart and she had developed a mental strategy to deal with her lies. She would later say the following, I tried looking at myself in the third person and I didn't like who I saw. But rationalizations in my head said I had to keep going, otherwise I would lose everything that ever meant anything to me. At this point, she was really deep into her lies, and I cannot imagine the weight that must have been on her shoulders or the stress that she must have felt thinking about her next lie and how she was going to keep this facade up. And truthfully, I'm not sure if she really believed that she was able to keep up with these lies forever or that maybe she was already thinking about an exit plan or some way to get out of this. But the way she was going, honestly, I kind of feel like unless her lies would have, if her, I feel like if her lies would have never been unraveled, she might have just kept on lying because who was who was going to stop her, right? In any case... Not long after she graduated university, or fake graduated university, it all came to a head. During her time at the University of Toronto, Jennifer told her parents that she had started working as a volunteer at Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children, known as Sick Kids. And honestly, I'm not sure why she would have added this lie into this mix. Like, I feel like it just added uh, another layer of complexity to her already very complex layer of lies but she did she said mom dad this is amazing i'm now a volunteer at the hospital for sick children this is so cool i'm i'm so awesome and her parents were like wow jennifer you really are incredible mm. but sometime after graduation when she wasn't studying but so called volunteering a lot she still kept staying over at her friend Topaz's house a lot and you know I think in general just her movements, her behavior. It wasn't what her parents were expecting, I think, of her after she graduated university. Maybe they were expecting her to, you know, get a real job as a pharmacist. But in any case, her parents, they grew suspicious. Han and Bick soon became suspicious when they realized that Jennifer did not have a hospital ID badge or a uniform. So the next day, the next day her father Han insisted that they drop her off at the hospital. And as soon as the car stopped, Jennifer rushed inside and Han instructed Bic to follow her. Realizing she was being followed by her mom, Jennifer hid in the waiting area of the ER for a few hours until her parents finally left. Early the next morning, Bic and Han phoned her friend Topaz because you see Jennifer wasn't home. And they knew that Jennifer obviously was not working at SickKids. So they were wondering, you know, where is she? Is she even staying at Topaz? They're very smart, actually. The way that they were, they went from one aspect to the next. They were like, what else is our daughter lying about? So they phoned Topaz. And at first, Topaz, you know, is confused. And is like, I don't know what you're talking about. But then she tells them the truth. And she says, Jennifer wasn't here you know she didn't come over last night I don't know if she told them everything but she did tell them that Jennifer wasn't there so when Jennifer finally came home Han confronted his daughter and Jennifer broke down and confessed that she did not volunteer at Sick Kids, had never been to University of Toronto let alone follow the University of Toronto's pharmacology program and had indeed been staying at her boyfriend Daniel's house that's a lot and This is all that she told them. Apparently, she failed to tell them that she had never graduated high school and that her time at Ryerson was also complete fiction. But I can imagine that that might have been a little too much all at once. I feel like if she would have told her parents the rest that they might have had a heart attack or something because, wow, these are a lot of lies and also pretty big lies because essentially for the past what is it four or five years she'd really been lying to her parents about really big things you know these were big parts of her life and she just lied to them in their face every day for the past four or five years because let's not forget she really went far with her lies she would even show her parents you know her her grades lists she would show them notes she would tell them about her exams and people at school like she was living a double life a false complete fabricated life, and she would lie to her parents in their face every day for years. Now in a state of shock, her father Han wanted to throw Jennifer out of the house, but her mother persuaded him to allow her to stay. After being exposed, her parents confiscated her phone, her laptop, and they forbade her from going anywhere except for her piano teaching job, and they also forbade her from dating or contacting Daniel Wong. But of course, you cannot stand in the way of love. During this time, Jennifer and Daniel spoke in secret. Jennifer was madly in love with Daniel and she was lonely too. For two weeks, she was housebound with her mother by her side nearly constantly. Though Big told Jennifer where her dad had hidden her phone so she could periodically check her messages. And I really think that this is so sweet. I feel like there are a couple of examples throughout this whole story where you can see that her mom is really on jennifer's side i mentioned it before when big you know would tell her father to you know mind his business leave jennifer alone and here she's you know telling her where her dad hid her phone you know go check your messages te- text your friends i think that's really sweet but yeah side note by the time that jennifer was 24 daniel was done trying to pursue a relationship with her As Jennifer was restricted by her parents more than ever and only met him in secret, he was fed up with their secret romance. She was 24 and still sneaking around, terrified of her parents but not willing to leave home. He told her to figure out her life and he broke off their relationship. And Jennifer was of course heartbroken because remember she was in love with Daniel. Daniel began dating a girl named Christine and Jennifer soon found out and was not happy with this. She quickly invented a bizarre story that would get his attention and draw him back to her. Jennifer told Daniel that a man had entered her house showing what had appeared to be a police badge. She then told him that several men had rushed in and gang raped her and after this she insisted that a bullet was mailed to her, telling Daniel that it was sent from his new girlfriend. She claimed that also the first attack and the bullet sent to her were warnings from Christine to leave Daniel alone. Naturally Daniel was shocked and could not believe what she was hearing but he still cared for Jennifer and took her side. He broke up with his girlfriend and Jennifer and Daniel got back together. Now, since her web of lies was unraveled and Jennifer was exposed for the liar she was, she had regained her parents' trust in the two years that had followed. Her phone privileges had been restored and she had regained a big part of her freedom. And after Jennifer and Daniel reconnected, he gave her a spare phone, which she then used to ask him to help stage a robbery to kill her parents. Now, unfortunately, this was not the first time Jennifer had planned to kill her parents. In the spring of 2010, before she reconnected with Daniel Wong, she reconnected with Andrew Montemayor, a friend from elementary school. According to Jennifer's statements later in court, he had boasted about robbing people at Knife Point in the park near his home, a claim that he denies. When Jennifer told him about her torturous relationship with her dad, Andrew Montemayor confessed that he had once considered killing his own father. The notion intrigued Jennifer, who began imagining how much better her life would be without her father around. Following this, Andrew Montemayor then introduced Jennifer to his roommate Ricardo Duncan, a goth kid with black nail polish. Over bubble tea in between her p- p- over bubble tea in between her piano lessons, according to Jennifer, they had to plan for Ricardo to murder her father in a parking lot at his work. She says she gave Ricardo $1,500, earnings from her piano classes, and they agreed to connect later by phone to arrange the date and time of the hit. But Ricardo stopped answering her calls, and by early July, Jennifer realized that she'd been ripped off ricardo however says that she called him in early july hysterical asking him to come kill her parents he said that he felt offended and said no and that the only money she ever gave him was 200 dollars for a night out which he gave back to jennifer now this is already bizarre now this is already bizarre because during this period she's actually like she's regaining her freedom her privileges her parents trust essentially So, you know, it's interesting to see that even though things are seemingly going better and she has this this second chance with her parents, essentially she has a second chance to kind of turn things around, you know, get her high school diploma, maybe enroll for university um, and, and still get back on track. She's here still kind of making odd, odd choices, I would say. Fast forward to the fall of 2010, Daniel being the ever supportive boyfriend he was, introduced Jennifer to an underworld friend of his named Lenford Roy Crawford, a Jamaican born whom he called homeboy. Over a series of texts, Jennifer agreed to pay him $10,000 out of her eventual inheritance. You see, Jennifer and Daniel, being good at maths, had calculated that she would inherit 500000 after her parents were killed. And they made plenty of plans, such as moving in together, but their first plan was to have Jennifer's parents killed. Daniel also gave Jennifer a SIM card and an iPhone so she could be in touch with Lenford without using her usual personal phone. Lenford then contacted another man named Eric Sean Sniper Cardi who in turn contacted Montreal-born David Milvaganum. Lenford prepared by scoping out her neighborhood on October 30th, so Halloween 2010, and for some reason, this makes it so much more creepy as he was walking around in between the kids, trick-or-treating, scoping out the place that he was going to commit a murder. Very cold-blooded. On November 8th, Lenford texted Jennifer, After work, okay, will be game time. On the afternoon of November 2nd, however, the plan took an unexpected turn. Daniel texted Jennifer, saying that he felt as strongly about Christine as she did about him. Suddenly, everything was thrown into question. She texted Daniel, So you feel for her what I feel for you, then call it off with Homeboy. Daniel responded, I thought you wanted this for you. Jennifer replied, I do, but I have nowhere to go. Daniel wrote back, call it off with homeboy you said you wanted this with or without me jennifer i want it for me the next day daniel texted i did everything and lined it all up for you it seemed daniel wanted out of the arrangement but within hours they'd reverted to their old ways texting and flirting later that day Lennifer texted jennifer i need the time of completion think about it jennifer wrote back today is a no-go dinner plans out so won't be home in time over the following week, there was a flurry of texts and phone conversations between Jennifer, Daniel, and Lenford. And then we get back to the morning of November 8th, when Lenford texted Jennifer, after work, okay, will be game time. And this whole thing is very... I don't know, reading it kind of gives me the chills because they're so cold-blooded. They're, they're so casually texting and, and calling and... You know, she's saying, oh, we're going out for dinner, won't be home in time. Like, it's so casual. I just, I cannot and I do not want to understand how these people are thinking at this point. That evening, November 8th, 2010, Jennifer watched Gossip Girl and John and Kate Plus 8 in her bedroom while her father Han read the Vietnamese news down the hall in his bed before going to sleep around 8.30 p.m. Bick, her mother, was out line dancing with a friend and a cousin, and Felix, Jennifer's brother, who was studying engineering at McMaster University, wasn't home. At approximately 9.30 p.m., Bick came home from her line dancing class, changed into her pajamas, and soaked her feet in front of the TV on the main floor of the house. At 9.35 p.m., David Milvaganam called Jennifer, and they spoke for nearly two minutes. Jennifer went downstairs to say goodnight to Bick, And as Jennifer later admitted, she went downstairs to unlock the front door, a statement which she eventually retracted. At 10.02pm, the light in the upstairs study was switched on, allegedly a signal to the intruders, and a minute later, it switched off. At 10.05pm, David called again, and he and Jennifer spoke for three and a half minutes. Moments later, Lenford, David, and Eric walked through the front door all three carrying guns one pointed his gun at bick while another ran upstairs shoved a gun in han's face and directed him out of bed down the stairs and into the living room Mm. Upstairs, Eric confronted Jennifer outside her bedroom door. According to Jennifer, Eric tied her arms behind her using a shoelace. He directed her back inside, where she handed over approximately 2500 Canadian dollars in cash, then to her parents' bedroom, where he located 1100 U.S. dollars in her mother's nightstand, and then finally to the kitchen to search for her mother's wallet. In pure panic and fear, Big asked Han, how could they enter the house?, Han replied, I don't know, I was sleeping. One of the intruders told him, shut up, you talk too much. Another one yelled, where's the money? Because you see, Han only had $60 in his wallet and they wanted more. But Han just told them, that's all the money I have in my wallet. It's honestly all I have. But clearly this wasn't enough for them. And they yelled at him, accusing him of being a liar and pistol whipped him on the back of the head. Big began weeping, pleading with the men not to hurt their daughter. One of the intruders replied, rest assured, she is nice and will not be hurt. Now, again, this is a moment where we see that her mother is on her side. Jennifer's mother is on her side. And even in this moment, she's asking them, you know, she's worrying about her daughter. Not knowing that her daughter is the one who set this whole thing up. And this is just so extremely heartbreaking to think about. As a mother would, as a mother does, in these moments, she's only thinking of the safety of her daughter. And it is just so heartbreaking that her daughter is the one who is the cause of this horribly frightening moment. Now, Eric led Jennifer back upstairs and tied her arms to the banister. Well, David and Lenfer took Big and Han to the basement and covered their heads with blankets. And this is the part where it gets very dark. They shot Han twice, once in the shoulder and then in the face, and he crumpled to the floor. They shot Big three times in the head, killing her instantly. Then they ran back upstairs and fled through the front door. As the gunman fled... Jennifer dialed nine one one, and as she was on the phone with nine one one, her father appeared from the basement. He miraculously survived the shooting, and you can actually hear this moment during the phone call. Let's have a listen. Where
1: are you, ma'am? I have you. Please just don't kill me. I don't want my parents dead. Ma'am, calm down. What? Some people broke into a house you show us all his money. Okay, ma'am. Went, ma'am, yelling, ma'am. Yeah, ma'am okay, ma'am, ma'am. Where are you?
0: What? Avenue. Avenue Road. Yes. Yeah. Can you spell the street name for me, please? Dad? I'm calling Ma'am? The palabra, the Ma'am? Prison. Ma'am?
1: Hello? okay, oh, Hello? Yes. Ma'am, I need to know your address. Avenue Road, can you please oh, spell it? What Avenue? My dad just went outside screaming. Ma'am, can you spell the street address for me, please? N E L E N.
0: So you can clearly hear the moment that Han appears from the basement and is just hysterically shouting for help, and understandably so. Han collapsed outside where paramedics found him and rushed him to the hospital. Due to the severity of his injuries, doctors put Han in a medically induced coma from which he would awaken some days later. Now, the police interviewed Jennifer just before 3am the night of the attack, and she had told them that three men had entered her house and... They were there to rob them searching for money, that they tied her to the banister and then took her parents to the basement and shot them. And although police believed Jennifer during questioning that night, they were suspicious about how she could reach her phone while her arms were tied behind her back to the banister. Their skepticism only grew during a second interview on November 10th when they asked her to simulate how she did so. Because you see, she was not even sure herself how it was realistically possible. At their request, she showed them how she contorted her body to get her phone, a flip phone, out of her waistband to place a call while tied with her hands behind her back to a banister. And honestly, the police was not really convinced by how she, you know, how she did it because it really wasn't possible, actually. Holes began to emerge in Jennifer's story. For instance, the keys to Han's Lexus were in plain view by the front door, and if it were indeed a home invasion, why did the intruders not take the car? And why didn't they have a crowbar to get in, or a backpack to carry the loot, or a zip ties to restrain the residents? And most importantly, why would they shoot Two witnesses, but leave one unharmed. The police assigned a surveillance team to monitor Jennifer's movements because they were very suspicious of her. Waking from his three day medically induced coma on November 12th, Jennifer Pan's father had a broken bone near his eye, bullet fragments lodged in his face that doctors could not remove, and a shattered neck bone. The bullet had grazed the carotid artery, so he barely survived. Remarkably, however, he remembered everything, including two troubling details. He recalled seeing his daughter chatting softly like a friend. He said with one of the intruders, and that her arms were not tied behind her back while she was being led around the house. And when Detective Williams and when Detective William Goetz questioned Jennifer again on November twenty-second, two thousand ten, the jig was up. He told her he knew everything, and Jennifer cracked. On November 22nd, the police brought Jennifer in for a third interview. This one had a different tone from the others. Instead of a victim, Jennifer was now a suspect. Detective William Goetz said that he knew she was involved in the crime. He knew that she had lied to him and said it was in her best interest to just confess. Jennifer hunched over and, sobbing, asked repeatedly, But what happens to me? Let's listen to this moment.
1: And at this point, Jennifer, I know that you've not been truthful with the police. Okay? You've not told us everything that you know. Purposely. You've spent a considerable amount of time in the last seven years telling half-truths. And I can understand why, okay? You've had a tough life. We know that you're involved. We've done our homework, okay? We have to resolve that now here today. I need to know from you what really happened because you know who was in that house that night. You, you do, Jen. There's no question about that, okay? But what happened to me? Well, I don't know at this point, okay, because I don't know what you're going to tell me other than that you were involved, but I need to hear it. What do
0: you think should happen? I don't know. Now, over nearly four hours, Jennifer gave an absurd explanation for the events that had taken place. She told police that the attack on her parents had been an intricate plan to commit suicide gone horribly wrong. She had given up on life but couldn't manage to kill herself, so she hired Lenford, a.k.a. Homeboy, whose real name she claimed not to know, kill her. You know, she couldn't do it herself, so she was like, homeboy, please kill me. But in September, her relationship with her father had suddenly improved, and she decided to call off the hit on herself. But there was somehow a major miscommunication, and the men ended up killing her parents instead of her. Now, this must be now this must been one hell of miscommunication because how do you go from killing one girl aka jennifer pan to murdering her parents this is a crazy story this is a very interesting excuse a very interesting version of events and of course the police did not believe one bit of it the police arrested jennifer on the spot not believing her version of events And in the spring of 2011, so a couple of months later, relying on analysis of cell phone calls and texts, the police also arrested Daniel, Lenford, Eric, and David and charged all five with first-degree murder and attempted murder and conspiracy to commit murder. On March 19, 2014, nearly three and a half years after the fatal attack had taken place, the trial began. Initially, the trial was expected to last six months, but ended lasting almost 10 months. More than 50 witnesses testified, and more than 200 exhibits were filed. Jennifer was on the stand for seven days in total, during which she tried to explain away the damning evidence against her. She tried to explain away the text messages with Lenford and Daniel, as well as the calls with David, and desperately tried to convince the jury that while she had indeed ordered a hit on her father earlier that year, two thousand ten, three months later, her relationship with her father had improved and she no longer wanted him dead. When the guilty verdict was eventually delivered, Jennifer showed no emotion. But once the press had left the courtroom, she wept shaking uncontrollably and to me this gives a glimpse into jennifer pan's mind there is a version of her that she wants others to see someone who is not a failure confident successful strong i don't know she wants people to see what she shows them in february 2009 she wrote on her facebook page living in my house is like living under house arrest But she also posted a note, no one person knows everything about me and no two people put together know everything about me. I like being a mystery. For the charge of first degree murder, Jennifer received an automatic life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years. And for the attempted murder of her father, she received another sentence of life to be served concurrently. Daniel, David and Lenford each received the same sentence. And because eric's lawyer fell ill during the initial trial his trial was proposed postponed to early 2016 after which he received the same sentence as the others the judge also granted two non-communication orders one banning communication among the five defendants until eric's trial was complete and the second between jennifer and her family at her family's request effectively preventing jennifer from speaking to her father or brother ever again now her lawyer addressed this order in court saying that Jennifer was open to communicating with her family if they wanted to and Jennifer's father Han and her brother Felix both wrote victim impact statements Jennifer's father Han wrote when I lost my wife I lost my daughter at the same time I don't feel like I have a family anymore and some say I should feel lucky to be alive but I feel like I am dead too he is now unable to work due to his injuries, and he suffers anxiety attacks, insomnia, and when he can sleep, nightmares. He's in constant pain and has given up gardening, working on his cars, and listening to music, since none of those activities bring him joy anymore. And since he can't bear to be in his house, he lives with relatives nearby. Han is desperate to sell the family home, but no one will buy it. Felix moved to the East Coast to find work with a private technology company and escape the stigma of being a member of the Pan family. He also suffers from depression and has become closed off. At the end of his statement, Han addressed Jennifer. I hope my daughter Jennifer thinks about what has happened to her family and can become a good and honest person someday. And since Jennifer will be eligible for parole in 2039, she has plenty of time to think about the consequences of her actions. So this is an extremely sad case and just the impact, the consequences of Jennifer's actions has just completely destroyed a family and, you know, her brother and her father will have long-life trauma and heartache over this and it's just absolutely devastating to think about. But it does leave a question or a couple of questions such as, what went wrong and could this have been prevented? And of course, why would a child with seemingly so much potential have her own parents killed? And I don't think the answer is so straightforward. There were different sides to Jennifer when she was at home, in school, or with her boyfriend. Now, to give you some more background on what Jennifer was like in high school, I want to read you something that karen ho wrote about for an article in toronto life back in 2015 karen went to school with jennifer she was an acquaintance of jennifer's so it's very interesting to see what she wrote and to get a close perspective on jennifer now jennifer attended mary ward catholic secondary in north scarborough where she played the flute in the senior stage band and karen was also in the school band but she was a year behind jennifer so she wrote A close observer might have noticed that Jennifer seemed off, but I never did. As far as Catholic schools go, it was something of an anomaly. It had the usual high academic standards and strict dress code mixed with a decidedly bohemian vibe. It was easy to find your tribe. Bright kids and artsy misfits hung out together across subjects, grades, and social groups. If you played three instruments, took advanced classes, competed on the ski team and starred in the school's annual international night, a showcase of various cultures around the world, you were cool. It was the perfect community for a student like Jennifer, a social butterfly with an easy, high-pitched laugh. She mixed with guys, girls, Asians, Caucasians, jocks, nerds, people deep into the arts. Outside of school, Jennifer swam and practiced the martial arts of Wushu. So clearly there was other things that Jennifer was doing other than figure skating, other than ice skating, and the piano. She continues to write, I discovered later that Jennifer's friendly, confident persona was a facade, beneath which she was tormented by feelings of inadequacy, self-doubt, and shame. When she failed to win first... when she failed to win first place at skating competitions, she tried to hide her devastation from her parents, not wanting to add worry to their disappointment. Her mother Bic, was her mother Bic noticed something was amiss and would comfort her daughter at night when Han was asleep, saying, You know all we want from you is just your best. Just do what you can. From this, we can take away that Jennifer was struggling with strong negative feelings of self-doubt. She was also self-harming at the age of 13 and clearly was dealing with some mental issues. But it cannot be so simple as mental health issues getting all the blame for this. Plenty of children have mental health issues and do not try to have their parents killed. It is also not as simple as a child having snapped following years of being controlled and restricted by her parents. This took weeks to plan and she even tried having her father killed earlier that year in the spring of 2010. So perhaps it was the pressure and the shame after her lies were exposed and her facade came crumbling down. Her parents had finally seen Jennifer for who she was, not the successful and respectful child they had wanted her to be. Maybe that is what drove her to killing her parents. But surely, on some levels, she must have loved her parents, especially her mother, who on many occasions stood up for her daughter when her father could be so harsh. On the stand, she even said, I needed my family to be around me. I wanted them to accept me. I didn't want to live alone. I didn't want them to abandon me either. She was hysterical on the phone when she called 911 and teared up in the courthouse while describing the sound of her parents being shot. But how do you believe a liar? Jennifer had been living a lie for most of her life and she also lied in all three statements she gave to police and under oath she was repeatedly caught in tiny half-truths. And remember when she was talking to Daniel, she told him that she wanted to be alone and without her parents. She wanted to move in together with Daniel and she had decided that there were so many more benefits to having her parents out of her life than having them in her life. So it is honestly very difficult to know exactly what to believe, you know, who she was with Daniel and what she was telling Daniel versus who she was at home and who she was on the stand. It's, I think, when someone has lied so much in their life and has been able to successfully deceive people up close for so many years it is very difficult to really know what is going on in their head and what to believe exactly is it possible that being raised the way she was raised resulted in Jennifer actually hating her parents and wanting them dead some people do believe the blame is fully on her parents A friend of Jennifer's told a reporter I think they pushed her to that point. I honestly don't think Jennifer is evil. This is just two people she hated. But Jennifer Pan is not the only child to be raised by a strict tiger parent. Her brother Felix was surely raised in the same home, yet did not lie about most of his life, nor did he try to have his parents killed. Karen Ho, the writer of the article I previously mentioned, also compared her strict upbringing to that of Jennifer having been raised in a similar Asian household, though her parents immigrated to Canada from Hong Kong. Karen's parents also expected pure excellence of her and wanted her to be the best in everything she did. She, She wrote... I felt like a hamster on a wheel sprinting to meet some sort of expectation, solely determined by him, that was always just out of reach. Hugs were, in- Hugs were a rarity in my house, and birthday parties and gifts from Santa seized around age 9. I was talented at math and figure skating, though my father almost never complimented me, even when I excelled. He played down my educational achievements, just like his parents had done with him. The prevailing theory in our culture being that flattery spoils ambition. Now, not that their experiences were exactly the same, but there are so many kids in very similar situations that do not try to murder their parents. So I think it is completely unfair to blame her parents. Jennifer was an adult and could have chosen to do anything else. Having been lied to for so many years, her parents were actually quite forgiving, especially Jennifer's mother. And she had an opportunity to essentially start over and do something with her life, but she chose this path. Like she literally could have just you know, gotten her high school diploma, enrolled at university anyways, like her parents had also motivated her to, you know, go do that anyways. But yeah, she still chose to do this. She still decided that her parents were to blame and that they needed to die. Now, I think Jennifer was feeling lost and perhaps ashamed still. I definitely think she needed to deal with the negative feelings about herself that she had been feeling for so many years. Mental health challenges can come in many shapes and forms, and Jennifer had clearly been struggling with some for many years. I also think there were two people she blamed for the way she saw herself, the unattainable expectations, and for the choices she had made, her parents. To add to this, she was in love with a boy her parents did not approve of, and they still controlled her in such a big way and restricted her freedom. Finally, I do not believe she really understood the finality of what she was doing, if you know what I mean. I don't think she really thought this through and realized what putting this plan into motion really meant. In her mind, she was going to get her freedom. She would be able to do what she wanted whenever she wanted and with whomever she wanted and her parents would have nothing to say. I do not think she was really able to comprehend the finality of this action and what would happen as soon as her parents died and what that would feel like. Now, regardless of this all, the outcome of Jennifer's actions remains the same. Her family is broken, her mother is dead, her father is left with a lifetime of trauma and heartache, and her brother Felix also has his own share of heartache and trauma as a result. So, with that, we have come to the end of this week's case, a case that is extremely sad, heartbreaking, troublesome and it really gives you a lot to think about it surely gave me a lot to think about and since the first day that I found out about this case till today I'm still thinking about you know what was Jennifer thinking how could this have been prevented what makes Jennifer Jennifer as a person so different from any other child that grew up in similar circumstances so yeah I hope that you enjoyed today's episode and that you found it interesting if you would like to share your thoughts with me on this case please do so you can find me on instagram at true crime consultant i would really like to hear your own thoughts on this case because as you know i have plenty of thoughts maybe we can continue the conversation thank you so much for being here today and also thank you for spreading the word about my podcast i really appreciate the support and i'm very excited to be back next week with an all new case and i hope to see you there until then have a good week stay safe don't forget to call your mom do a mental health check on yourself and your friends and uh, let's keep in touch ciao